0: This podcast was proudly brought to you by the Institute of Directors, with support from the Advanced Directors course. Kia ora, I'm Stephen Mo, and we're back again for another season of Board Matters. This time we're taking a closer look at the diverse perspectives of directors from around the country, getting an insight into their sectors, to find out why governance and the decision-making process is important and what it looks like when it's done well. In this episode, we'll hear from Julie Reid.
1: My experience in Australia was largely focused on financial services enforcement, both as a prosecutor and at the Australian Securities and Investments Commission. And I saw some really interesting governance stuff while I was doing that job. In New Zealand, my governance experience has been focused in part as an enforcer at the Serious Fraud Office, where I was the director, but also on a number of government boards that I've been on, internal government boards like the Justice Sector Leadership Board and so on, and also on the board of St John. I've been doing that coming up to three years that's been a really deeply interesting experience.
0: I actually practiced over in Australia myself. Um, so I was really familiar with ASIC and, you know, doing more corporate and mergers and acquisitions. But what led you to specialize in that sort of area?
1: It was an organic <laughs> experience. And I think lots of us, we talk about career planning, but a lot of us end up in that space one way or another. I guess it started when I became a prosecutor with the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. Particularly at the time I was working there, that was a real focus on financial crime because that was the Commonwealth Government criminal law was focused on financial crime and in particular financial crime against the government. And then that led me to ASIC because they had an interest in prosecutions that were conducted on behalf of ASIC by the Commonwealth DPP. While I was at ASIC, I did um, the Australian Wheat Board case where the Australian Wheat Board paid something like $320 million in bribes to Saddam Hussein. So I was responsible for the investigation of that as well as the litigation, which in turn led me to New Zealand. I didn't plan all of that, <laughs> but I, I've had a, a great career that I've found to be really interesting in that finance financial
0: The thing that's been interesting for me is talking with a real variety of people from different sectors. And so in your case, I'm really fascinated in the lens that you bring to this topic of governance, because governance is something that you would have seen shortcomings in, I can imagine, in some of the investigations. What is your view of governance?
1: You know, one of the things about being at ASIC and also being a prosecutor and also at the Serious Fraud Office is that from time to time you get deeply immersed in an aspect of governance and you see things. For example, in Australia, I was involved in the FIA insurance matter. One of the issues there for governance was that that was a small organisation, a small company which became FIH, very big company. The owners and the directors didn't grow with it, and in fact it outgrew them, which led to governance problems, competence problems. At the SFO, I've seen issues arising from the lack of interest of the beneficiaries in the management and the governance of trusts. You know, Every now and then, as I say, you get really deeply into something. I think the deepest I ever got into something was with the James Hardy case, which went to the High Court in Australia. And that was all about an announcement that the James Hardy Board of Directors made about the sufficiency of funding for asbestosis victims who had been injured through the use of James Hardy products. So we started off with a fairly broad trial that lasted three months. Ultimately, when we got to the High Court, so you go from the the trial to the Court of Appeal to the High Court, it became about the minutes of the meeting and what the directors had minuted about their decision to make a public announcement about the sufficiency of the funding. You can get sort of a bit of a rabbit hole view (laughs) of the world, but you do learn broader lessons in that. For example, the minutes, It's, it's so basically important that they be accurate and that directors not just tick off at the next meeting that the minutes are accurate without really thinking about it. So that's something that I tend to focus on a bit. We focus on what our experience tells us.
0: I do the facilitating on the legal risks part of the CDC, the company director course. And so there's 25 directors in the room. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, how much should we record in our minutes? There is a balance, isn't there? Because you want them to be accurate, but you don't want pages and pages and pages
1: Yeah, look, I think actually minutes are a a really complex area. Absolutely, you should not record everything that's said. For example, you could have a really fierce debate about something and I could start off by saying, look, I think X. Through the course of the debate, come to realise that actually that was not a tenable position. That wasn't the thing that the company should do. It doesn't help to record that I said that at the start of the debate. What's really important is to record the decision and the principal considerations leading to that decision, not the whole discussion. And too often, I think you see the whole discussion being minuted out of an excess of caution, but actually that can be dangerous. You know, for me, it's about what was the decision made? What were the principal considerations that led you to make that decision? And that should be it
0: there is this tension, isn't there, between something that's so light that you can't even tell that it was even considered. Did the directors turn their mind to this really important issue? Well, we can't even tell because all that's recorded in the minutes is literally three words that say the motion was passed or something. You know, like, there's that extreme, but then there's the other, which is well, I want it recorded in the minutes exactly word for word what I said. And that's too far the other way.
1: Absolutely, I agree. They can be too light um, and and they don't help anyone. The thing about, I want you to record what I said, it is a a majority decision thing. Unless you've persuaded everyone else to your view, then it's not really relevant, is it? Because it's not the decision of the board.
0: Which actually comes back to even more fundamental points, which is, The role of governance as a board rather than the individuals on the board. Because sometimes I think there is there can be a bit of a point scoring mentality among immature boards where it's from a Western individualistic way, I said this or I am proposing this rather than actually it's a collective decision of a group of people.
1: Absolutely.
0: One of the things that I always tell people is who remembers what they were doing five years ago? Like, I have a vague memory of what I was doing in, in as we're talking now, you know, going back to 2018, but I couldn't tell you at this time on that day, this is what we said in the meeting. So the minutes should record enough where you can say, oh, yeah, that's what we talked about.
1: As a barrister in my past life, witnesses' recall of what happened is notoriously unreliable, And even when it sounds like what they've said was absolutely sensible, you can find that it's not. I I did this really fascinating case that was all about an extradition and the question was whether the magistrate had made his decision to sign off on the extradition just on my say-so or whether he personally considered the various factors. And so it came down to how long did it take him to sign between when I made my submissions and he signed and so we had three lawyers, two partners in a firm and a junior, and they gave evidence and the two partners said, oh, no, you know, it was very brief time, but everything else they said sounded plausible. The junior it didn't sound very plausible. This was all necessary because the recordings, the proceedings had been lost. So that goes from magistrate to federal court in Australia to full court of the federal court to the high court, which it did eventually. In between that hearing before the federal single judge of the federal court, where these three people gave their evidence, and the full court of the Supreme Court, the recording was found. The partners were right about everything except for the timing, and the junior was wrong about everything except for the timing. So he was right. The magistrate had considered. I have to say, he put a big dent in my confidence in oral evidence. And so, as you say, coming back and in a very circuitous way, having accurate written records is so important.
0: That's a helpful story though, and maybe a yeah. reminder for all of us what we remember may not be as accurate as uh, as we think. I'm just thinking about the role that you played at the Serious Fraud Office and the investigations that you were doing. When have you seen governance done poorly?
1: There are always instances of poor governance where, one of the governors takes financial advantage of their position. And you see that everywhere. This is certainly not (laughs) unique to New Zealand, as you'll know. What happens there is you have a dominant governor. The other governors often aren't prepared or feel able to counterbalance what that governor wants to do. And also you can have complacency on the part of the beneficiaries who don't take any notice of it until there's nothing left. And this in particular, I think, in you know charitable organisations and, and trusts where you might have a, a disadvantaged group of beneficiaries as compared to perhaps more sophisticated shareholders in larger corporations and indeed in larger charities. Board Matters, brought to you by the Institute of Directors with support from the Advanced Directors Course.
0: One of the things that I think we don't often think through is that it isn't necessarily financial, you know, that that there can be other forms of conflict. If someone's being considered for a position within a company where you're a director and yeah. you know that it's your nephew or niece, but you don't tell the rest of the board, it's going to be a very awkward moment a month later when they come in and you go and give them a hug and a kiss, right? Yeah. So you have to bear that in mind too, don't you?
1: And that can be a really difficult situation. You could support the appointment of the nephew or niece um, because you want to advance their careers. um, And that may not be a good thing. They may not be ready for that position. They might not be the appropriate person. Or they might be exactly the right person. Um, But because you didn't declare your relationship with them When that becomes apparent later, you really jeopardise their appointment. So that might be to the detriment of the company down the track. It's always important to make those declarations. But I think in New Zealand generally, we're a bit complacent about conflicts of interest. I don't think I've ever had a conversation about conflicts of interest in this country without someone saying, oh, but New Zealand's such a small place, you can't avoid conflicts. And they say that as though that's the end of the argument. That's the clincher, you know, nothing more you can do. First, I don't actually accept that it is inevitable that there will be conflicts in New Zealand. We're five and a half million people or something like that now. There's got to be someone else sometimes for that position. There is more you can do. And I think mostly more, in fact, is done than to say, oh, New Zealand's a small place. Directors do declare their interests, And that information is generally part of all board packs. But as you say, there are those non-financial interests too. So I think people do declare them. And I think too many people think that declaring is enough in all situations. And I think that's where we get a bit shaky. Where there's an actual conflict, it is thought enough to disclose it. But if it is an actual conflict, I think everyone should think about standing down for that issue ask yourself, what if there's a situation in which my involvement could be seen as conferring advantage on another entity or person, or a disadvantage on that person or entity? We could do a lot better in this space.
0: It does strike me as well that the the first antidote to conflict is disclosure. But I think what you're saying is that beyond the disclosure, there may actually be some practical steps that need to be taken.
1: Yeah. If you participate in a, a discussion and it transpires that the wrong decision was made <laughs> down the track, it just complicates the whole situation that you've had a conflict when you participated in the situation. If you weren't part of it and the wrong decision is made, it's not because you were, you know, acting improperly.
0: Well, we've talked about the governance done poorly and, and the conflict situation. Tell us about when governance is done well. What makes good governance? What makes it unique? What have you noticed about good governance?
1: I think um, some of the, the best examples I've seen are based on great relationships, both within the board and between the board and the executive. Those relationships allow better discussions, greater frankness about the issues. People are more likely to accept views other than their own if those views are being expressed by people with whom they have good relationships, whom they respect, it's really important to spend time on that, time on the relationships, time on understanding roles in the not-for-profit or for-purpose sector can be that, and also with small businesses, that you're moving from a small organisation where you have one or two people who make all the decisions and as that grows and becomes more formal, those relationships might not be understood or the the roles might not be very well understood. Again, you know, that's where that underlying relationship work is important.
0: One of the things that I've been reflecting on recently is that with COVID, we did get used to Teams meetings, Zoom meetings, online meetings. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's really good. Like, I don't need to travel to get to this meeting. But at the same time, you do lose some of that before board meetings starting, having a drink after the board meeting. And it comes back to that word relationship, doesn't it? And I do yeah. worry sometimes that maybe we've lost a little bit of how important relationship is at a boardroom setting.
1: Yeah. The other thing with the Zoom meetings, of course, is that even the discussion, I think, is not as rich because you're all waiting for your turn to speak. And not that people should speak over one another in board meetings, but. There's a richer to and fro, I think, in a a discussion that's not online.
0: Was there any moment in, you know, your prosecuting days where you were looking at a board or at governance and you thought, wow, they did it right?
1: Look, I think you're right. It only ever came to me when things went wrong. I was really impressed when I did the advanced director's course. A woman came and spoke to us about their experience of a takeover. In their company. In part, she really reinforced for me the importance of relationships because she talked about all the time that she and the other directors who were opposing the takeover, because it was one of the directors who had a conflict but had chosen sides, he, he pulled out of the negotiations. She was talking about how much time they spent together and they got a really great outcome. You know, and being prepared to spend all of that time on that matter for that organisation, you know, another thing that I've seen that worries me a little bit and it worries everyone everywhere and, again, this is not a New Zealand thing, is directors who have too many directorships, who don't have the time to spend the time that's really required to do justice to each of those positions because when you get into a position that this company was in, it does require time and effort You can't do everything. So I I know that that's been an issue for a very long time in corporate governance around the world. And I think it's improved a lot. You know, sometimes the time required is going to be much more than that one monthly meeting.
0: When you left the Serious Fraud Office, uh, there was an article that was written and the opening line says, Julie Reid has quietly left the Serious Fraud Office and it appears that is just how she likes it. She spent almost a decade at the helm of the fraud watchdog during which she kept a low profile. And then it goes on to describe from your perspective, the merits, I guess, of keeping a low profile, because in our current culture, there is a lot of this look at me type of mentality. From a board perspective, governance perspective, any thoughts about that?
1: I've never actually read the whole article (laughs) because I can't get access to it. I think for the Serious Fraud Office, that was particularly important at the time when I became director. The Serious Fraud Office Act has very strong secrecy provisions in it, but also the Serious Fraud Office had a reputation as being a bit toxic within government in particular, but also a bit out there, a bit cowboy-like. My mandate as director was in part to try and look at, fix that. And I think that that's important for a director of the SFO, that you're not out there to persuade the media that you've got a good case. Ultimately, you put the case before the court and it's for the court to decide. And it's not for you to decide that actually the person's guilty. It's for you to decide that this matter should go to court, that there's enough evidence to warrant putting this person on trial, which is a pretty big decision to make. So I don't think that directors... Of you know, public prosecuting agencies should be too flamboyant. Um, should be out there, especially when you make predictions about cases that don't come true. It's not a. It's not a great book. I would have to admit that that fits with my own personal inclinations as well. While I've been deeply fascinated by the work that I've had to do, I've never been deeply fascinated with having a big public profile. If you want to be a politician, you you need to <laughs> have that bent. It's not necessary to do a good job either as a director or as a prosecutor. Maybe if you're chairman, you have to take a different view. And, and also when Alan Fells became the first chair of the Australian Consumer and Competition Commission, which is the equivalent of our ComCom, he was in the press all the time and he was you know really aggressive and we're going to get these people and all the rest. I thought, gee, he's an interesting character. And when I met him, I was bowled over. He was such a lovely, actually gentle man. I couldn't resist asking him, you know, because it seemed such a contradiction between his style as chairman of the ACCC in Australia and the Alan Fells that I met in a different context altogether. And he said, oh, yeah, he said, I had to do that. He said, it was a new organisation. It was a new jurisdiction. We had to make sure that we were taken seriously for all that I say, you don't have to be out there. He probably did. And I think he did a great job of it.
0: Julia, I'm interested in your own approach to learning, because one of the themes that I'm seeing in our conversation is that you've gone on courses and that you've been curious to to learn more. Can you describe, I guess, your mindset when it comes to your governance career and the role that learning plays to, I guess, upskill or to remain relevant?
1: Throughout my career and not just as a governor, I've always been surprised at the parallels you can draw between something that you did five years ago or learnt five years ago, a new situation that you find yourself in. And so I think it's important to take all opportunities to learn new stuff, either directly about governance as a discipline in itself, but also about as a board member at St John, how an ambulance service works, which is relevant to how all emergency services work. You know, there's always parallels to be drawn, and I think it makes life interesting. Nothing you learn is ever useless. I don't think I've ever been on a course where I've thought, actually, I knew absolutely all of that and I didn't didn't learn anything. Things change, you know. Perspectives change.
0: I'm just thinking about your background, your experience, looking at the board practices. What would you like to see in the future on governance?
1: I think less complacency because complacency about what you know, as we've just been discussing, about things like conflicts, about where your organisation's at. It may not still be that small organisation that you started 10 years ago or whatever it is. We do have to Be alert and not just think that things are going to be the same or that it's all right because New Zealand's a small place so we have to have conflicts of interest. But if we can just keep examining where we're at and what we're doing without just repeating ad infinitum the things that we've done before, we would be a lot better off.
0: That was Julie Reid. I'm Stephen Moe, and you've been listening to Season 2 of Board Matters, made by the Institute of Directors, with support from the Advanced Directors Course. An immersive three-and-a-half-day course designed for directors tackling complex governance issues and challenges, looking to hone their leadership skills. Board Matters is produced by Sonia Yi. You can find all of the episodes wherever you get your podcasts, and while you're there, we would love for you to share, like, or subscribe. If you'd like to find out more about what governance is, head to iod.org.nz. Kakite, and catch you next time!